Yes, good old Barson Bob, the youth pastor, the bald eagle. <laughs> that could stick around a little bit. Um, so today, as Daniel mentioned, it is our joy to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as God's people. Um, but like with the pandemic, um, uh, everything in the pandemic, it's going to be just a little different. So let me explain it to you so you can be prepared for, for that when it comes. Rather than you approaching the table today, we have servers who will bring the elements to you. Um, they'll be masked and wearing gloves. Um, the elements are in a prepackaged single container. Uh, when it's time to take the bread, you peel off the thin, um, translucent top layer. There's a wafer in there that represents the body of Christ. We'll take that together. And then you can take off the full lid to access the cup to take, uh, partake of the blood of Christ. So you'll, you'll see that as it comes to you. But it's just a little bit different. And I wanted you to be mindful of that when it comes to you. If you are a follower of, of Jesus and you're walking in fellowship with him, you're welcome to that table with us at the close of our time together today. You can open your Bibles or swipe there on your phones um, to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're studying today in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I'd like to take just a moment and pray for us as we open the Bible that God would teach us through his word. So pray with me if you would. Lord, be kind to us now by your spirit and your word once again. You've promised us your word doesn't return to you empty and void but accomplishes your good purpose. We, we say yes to that purpose in our lives now. We welcome it. Lord, come and do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, chapter 14, we're nearing the close of Mark's gospel. Counting today, there are only three more chapters left. And there is a theme that's ascending in the closing chapters of the Gospel of Mark and in each of the biographies of Jesus that I want to make sure um, that you don't miss, okay? It is very simple, but it is so very, very important. Here it is, okay? You are loved by God. Okay? You, you are loved by God. Uh, more than you know, you are greatly loved by God. You are loved with a love that begs a response. And if you get it, if you get what it means to be loved by God, it's a love that makes you want to love God back. And this is the, this is the ascending focus at the end of each of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. The love of God is being put on full display for us all to see. Now the Apostle John, in his telling of these latter parts of the life of Christ, writes about this display of love in John chapter 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Another way that last phrase is sometimes renders is he showed them the full extent of his love. And that's what we see today in Mark 14 and through the end of the gospel. And the way Mark is conveying it is through one of his favorite devices. Um, he makes a sandwich of sorts. So he has two themes and he puts in the middle his main theme. Okay, he has a repeated theme and then so we get two slices of bread and some meat, right? But today it's a, it's a double-decker. You've got three slices of bread and two pieces of meat. And that's kind of how we'll look at his, his passage is he's got this important teaching that he wants to bring to us. See, the bread in this sandwich Mark's creating for us is the display of Jesus' love for us by the rejection that he endures. The Old Testament prophet wrote of the Messiah long before Christ in the Old Testament saying, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
And so there are those three main slices of this enduring love of Christ in Mark's sandwich in chapter 14. Let's look at the first one in the first two verses. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So here Jesus is likely only two days prior to the cross. It's Wednesday of Holy Week. And the references to the feasts are important clues here, especially the connection to the Passover. Passover was an annual celebration of the Jewish people commemorating their deliverance from slavery hundreds of years before in Egypt by the blood of a lamb that was when spread on the doorpost of a household Um, spared that household the terrible judgment of God. Jesus is about to fulfill that feast in just two days. Mark draws our attention here, though, to in dangerously increasing levels of opposition, right, by none other than the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, the chief priests and the scribes. And Jesus is about to knowingly and willingly walk right into their death trap. These are the ones who should have been heralding his arrival. And instead, they're plotting his departure by his death. These are the ones who should have been his biggest fans. But instead, they're numbered among his mockers. We'll see when he's on the cross. The chief priests And the scribes, same group of people in chapter 15, mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So Jesus here is willingly walking right into this persecution trap by the religious leaders that would eventually cost him his life. Why would he do that? Because you are loved by God. More than you know, you are greatly loved by God. How then should we love him back? And, and, that's, where, and that's where we look at a second sorrowful slice of bread in Mark's telling here. I want to drop down to verse 10. It's about Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas here has gone over to the dark side, quite literally. And to understand what pushed him over, we're going to have to back up in time a little bit and look into some of the other gospel accounts and the way they tell this story. Because what Mark does here is he turns the calendar back about four days from Wednesday to the previous Saturday night. Look back at verse 3 in our story. And he puts this story in the midst of the sandwich. This is the meat. While he was at Bethany, Jesus that is, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This, it seems, is what pushed Judas over the edge. John tells us it was Judas who voiced the objection to this wasteful act. So Judas is the point man for this objection, but he's not alone in it. When Matthew tells this story, he attributes the complaint to the disciples broadly. And it doesn't bode well for the disciples here that they're following Judas' leadership. But John's clear, Judas is the ringleader in this matter, and he also makes it plain that he's not really about the poor, not not in Judas' heart and mind. Listen to how John says it in chapter 12. Judas said this 
not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, in Judas' dark heart, it's not really about the poor here. It's about Judas. It's about his greed. And Matthew bumps this insight about Judas' motive so that it sits right up against this telling of his, his scheming with the leaders. In 26 of Matthew, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, lamenting the loss of many coins, Judas sells his Lord for but a handful. And Jesus knows. Don't miss that in this telling. Jesus knows about these betrayals. Look down at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So sharing a meal together, it's sometimes referred to as table fellowship. Um, it's an indicator of friendship in their day even more than it is for ours. So if you have me over for dinner and I, have, and I have you over for dinner, we do that on a number of occasions, then we're talking friends, right? That's what that represents. Even more so in Jesus' day. It's interesting here, twice he alludes to the fact that his betrayer was his dinner partner. An intimate friend, he's saying. Even one of the twelve. So Judas thinks he's plotting secretly, but Jesus knew. He knew what was in Judas' heart and what he was about to do. When Matthew tells it, it becomes plain. He says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Jesus knew. But he would not bend from his mission, no shortcuts, no end arounds. He would endure a close chosen companion who would betray him unto death for a paltry sum of 30 silver coins. Depending on the coins, it might have been as little as a couple hundred bucks. And Jesus endures it to show you the full extent of his love. You are loved by God more than you know. You are greatly loved by God. How then should we love him back? And now we look at what's in between those two slices of opposition and betrayal. And we'll look back at that story that I briefly read about you from Jesus' Saturday night anointing. This is the meat, the first piece of meat in Mark's, Mark's sandwich, right? It's what he wants us to draw our attention to. It is how we love Jesus back. Let's, let's listen to that Saturday night story again. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the, the setting for this anointing, um, when you read John's telling of it, he says it's a dinner for Jesus. 
So it's a, it's a dinner party for Jesus. And somehow I doubt it was like when you have me over or, or I have you over. I don't think this is just an ordinary meal among friends. And it's the guest list that tips me off for that. First of all, it's at the house of Simon, Simon the leper. Now, what are, what are a bunch of good Jews doing at the home of a leper who is unclean? I think it's because he was unclean. He's probably now Simon, formerly known as the leper, right? I, I, I wonder if he was someone that Jesus healed of his leprosy, and that's what this meal is about. That could be the motivation for his hosting this dinner. Jesus had given him his, his life back. And then John also tells us more about the guest list. In addition to being at Simon's house, Lazarus is there and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And have they ever got a reason to attend a dinner for Jesus? He literally gave Lazarus his life back, literally. Simon's been given his health back. Lazarus has been given his life back. Mary and Martha have been given their brother back. I don't think this is just an ordinary meal. I think it's an outpouring of gratitude, a celebration of Jesus and his life-giving, life-restoring power. It's interesting, the focus is really not on Simon and it's not on Lazarus. It's on who Mark calls this woman. And John tells us it's Mary. Here's how John tells it. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary is the one who's doing the anointing here. And Jesus called what she did a beautiful thing. Um, I wonder why Jesus thought it was so beautiful. What was it about this act of devotion that he said was a beautiful thing? What would make our worship a beautiful thing? How do we love Jesus back with beautiful worship? Let me, let me just draw out a few things from this anointing, Mary's example. First of all, this is a costly act, right? Mary offers what is likely a great family treasure, an heirloom, or perhaps her inheritance. Women rarely had access to vocations that, that brought in this kind of money. It was a vial of perfume valued at 300 days wage, a year's wage. If they lived in North Carolina, and on average, that would be $30,000 this perfume is worth. In a word, it's extravagant. But Jesus had raised Mary's brother back to life, and now she understood that he was about to lay his own life down. I suppose there's a sense in which Judas was right. This act of worship is wasteful. The resources are simply offered to God. There's no higher end. There's no practical result. Professor Robin Cover says, beautiful worship involves giving that which is both very costly and very precious such that God is the only benefactor. It's just for him. It's all for him. But Mark gives us another little detail. Uh, in verse three, maybe you noticed it. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. She broke it. That means that she used it all. There's no recorking this and saving some for later. It was all for Jesus. All of it, all $30,000 worth poured out to anoint Jesus. Her worship is beautiful because it's costly and it's unrestrained. It involves her affections and her emotions. This act of anointing is a passionate thing for Mary. John tells us that she wiped the perfume on his feet with her hair. And as I understand it, the letting down of her hair was something that only would have been done privately. Okay. 
and the intimate affection she's displaying for Jesus here would be inappropriate with any other man who was not her husband. Not because it was sexual, but because of the intimacy of the affection that's being demonstrated. Mary can't help herself. Imagine what she is feeling. This is the man who just gave her beloved brother back to her alive after she mourned him for four days. She's about to explode with gratitude and love and admiration and appreciation and beautiful worship. And I can't help but wonder if Mary is about the only person who's grasped what Jesus has been repeatedly predicting. He's come to Jerusalem to die. And so she breaks a vial worth more than we can fathom and pours it out and wipes it with her hair to prepare him for his burial, he says. Worship, beautiful worship, is an expression of love. It involves our affections and our emotions. It's not mere ritual. It's an expression of love from a grateful heart. It oughtn't be restrained by worrying about the appraisal of the others present. Costly, extravagant, unrestrained. Her worship's also humbling. Mark says that she anoints his head, but um, John tells us that she's at his feet as well, anointing his feet with perfume. And the washing of feet was a task deemed too despicable for even a Jewish servant to perform. And yet there Mary is giving her best just to anoint Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair. And, and that's where beautiful worship takes place, at Jesus' feet. We are not in worship complimenting a peer. We are bowing before our Savior and our King. It should make us feel small and exalt Him as great. So this gathering here this morning, it's really not for us. It's for Him. And when we sing at the close of our service, and we'll sing at the close of our service, those of you felt cheated on the front end, um, we don't sing for us. We sing for him. It's worship for him. Costly, unrestrained, humbling. And it will not be deterred. Her worship generates pretty strong opposition. There's a harsh rebuke that comes to Mary for this act of worship. And some of you have experienced this. You give your life to following Christ and your family thinks you're nuts, right? Um, maybe you downsize your house. Maybe you sell your car. Maybe you limit your lifestyle so you have more resources to give to kingdom work. Maybe you even move to a faraway land like Japan. And people think you're crazy. Mary challenges us to offer beautiful worship to Jesus, which can be extravagant, even wasteful in other people's eyes. To do to him a beautiful thing no matter what anyone says. And, and the disciples turn on her no matter. Her worship continues. It doesn't matter what others think or say, even really significant others. Beautiful worship is undeterred, costly, unrestrained, humble, and it has the cross in view. She is anointing him for his burial. That's what he says in verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So only six days from this act, Jesus would be on the cross, and Mary's worship was beautiful because the cross was in view, perhaps larger than she knew. The great redemptive act of Jesus on the cross is the centerpiece of our worship as Christians. Beautiful worship is costly, unrestrained, humbling, undeterred, cross-centered. Mary's worship was all these things. Which of these traits ought you add to the worship you offer as you love Jesus back? Which one? Now, I told you this sandwich was a double-decker. There's another slice of bread, another act of painful rejection that Jesus in love bore for us. 
It's down towards the end, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So the focus falls on Peter here, right? Because he's the loudest objector to Jesus' prediction of infidelity amongst his disciples. But don't miss the greater sorrow that Jesus predicts here. He says, you will all fall away. And so they will. Jesus' prediction of his abandonment by all of his disciples will come true before you can even turn a single page in your Bible. His best friends, hand-picked, trained for three years in his company, by his side, sitting under his teaching, they all will forsake him to save their own skins. All of them. I don't know if you've ever been deserted by a friend, ever had someone be a no-show when you needed them most. Imagine if all your friends left you hanging in your hour of great need. In Jesus' case, they left him hanging on a tree. See, the religious leaders do it out of spite and envy. Judas does it for money. And the disciples, they, they flee Jesus out of fear. And in love, Jesus bears it all. Each time, he can see it coming. Each time, he predicts it. And yet, he never wavers. He never alters course. There's an intriguing little line in this last conversation with his friends that we just saw about their upcoming abandonment. He reassures them that even after they've abandoned him, he will be there for them. Look at verse 28. It says, Jesus says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's arranging a meeting for them after the resurrection. So, of course, here we have the beautiful hope of resurrection. But here, too, is the beautiful hope of restoration. He will meet them in Galilee. He will still love them, even though they forsake him. Jesus endures the rejection of his friends in love for you. He even endures your rejection of him and still loves you. You are loved by God. More than you know, you are greatly loved by God. How should you love him back? And that's where the second slice of meat comes into this sandwich. It's another way we love Jesus back. um, Because of his enduring love for us through all this rejection. So after making detailed arrangements in our passage to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples, we find Jesus kind of co-opting the traditional Passover ritual and giving it new meaning. Passover is being infused with a new meaning as Jesus fulfills it with his own death as our Passover lamb. Pastor Tim Keller says, there's no mention of lamb at this Passover meal. Passover was not a vegetarian meal, of course, he says. But what kind of Passover would be celebrated without mention of the lamb? There's no lamb mentioned. Because, he says, the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. Jesus is about to become our Passover lamb and bear the judgment of God for our sins on the cross and it's that imagery that forms what he's about to say verse 22 as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to them and said take this is my body 
And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so here Jesus gives us a way, another essential way that he wants us to love him back. And that's to remember him in this way, this simple meal with two elements. First with bread broken to represent his broken body, his person, all that he has. See, even as Mary broke that flask and poured it all out in love for Jesus, now Jesus is about to do the same thing for us. Break his body, holding nothing back, in love for us on the cross. Professor D.A. Carson says, as the bread has just been broken, so will Jesus' body be broken. And just as the people of Israel associated their deliverance from Egypt with eating the Paschal or the Passover meal, prescribed as a divine ordinance, so also Messiah's people are to associate Jesus' redemptive death with eating this bread. Now there's a second part to this meal, of course, and that's the cup that represents his blood, his very life poured out for us. And again, this is a kind of a Passover-like fulfillment of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of them that pointed towards this moment because in a matter of hours, when Jesus would shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, all sins would be paid for and cleansed forever. All of them, always. All your sins, always, would be borne by Christ. Let me, let me underscore one little thing. Well, first, notice that it's a, it's a new covenant that's being ratified. It's full of forgiveness and grace, and it's for many. It's for all peoples, everywhere. And then in verse 23, notice this little detail. It says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. So who drank it? They, they all drank it. All the cowardly deserters and unfaithful friends, all these great and terrible sinners, they all drank it because it's about grace, not about merit. No one deserves this. It's a gift to us all. And this is how Jesus wants us to love him back with the worship of that woman, Mary, costly, unrestrained, humbling, undeterred, cross-centered. But also remembering him together by this simplest of meals, bread broken and the cup shared, symbols of his body broken and his blood shed for us, symbols of his love. And so we want to do that together now. Um, and again, the Lord's Supper at North Wake is available for anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. That is, you are willing to forsake your sin and come near to Christ and worship him. Okay. Um, in just a moment, our servers are gonna come and they're gonna distribute, they'll come to you and distribute the elements. I'd like to ask today that you hold them until everyone has been served and then we'll partake of all of, of the elements together um, as a symbol of our unity as, as God's people. So if the servers will come, they'll distribute now the elements.
now as God's people, we, we remember together this very important truth. You are loved by God, okay? greatly loved by God, more than you know. And this simple meal that we share together as God's people, this is one of the ways, one of the beautiful ways Jesus asks us to love him back. And so we remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, take and eat. And in the same way, after the meal, Jesus took a cup. And he said, this cup contains the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Take and drink. invite you now to stand and let's sing our prayer to God in this time of worship.